Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be with Jimmy Aiken talking about the nativity. That's right. We're going to look at the infancy narratives and look at how accurate they really are and if Jesus Christ really was born in the time and place that the Bible says. Before all the mysteries, we should be humble. And as we humbly look at this beautiful mystery of the centrality of the only begotten Son of God being born in the humility of the nativity scene, let us turn to the words of St. Anthony of Padua and begin with his thoughts. O Father, in your truth, that is to say, in your Son, humbled, needy, and homeless, you have humbled me. He was humbled in the womb of the Virgin, needy in the manger of the sheep, and homeless on the wood of the cross. Nothing so humbles the proud sinner as the humility of Jesus Christ's humanity, born in the nativity. Let's take a look at this. Jimmy, welcome again. Uh, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. I'm very pl uh, pleased to be here. Yeah, absolutely. A crowd favorite. Our, our audience loves when we have Jimmy on because it really classes the joint up, makes us a little sound a little bit more knowledgeable than we typically are. Yeah. <laughs> and we can get into some topics that we normally can't get into because we don't have the knowledge and the expertise to really portray and relay them accurately. So that's, uh, Jimmy, we love having you on because we can get into some complexities and some really deep theology and some deep history that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So thank you. Yeah, the insights that you've offered to our followers on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and all of the uh, podcast forums has has been so fruitful. And not only are you a fan favorite, Jimmy, you're also Bishop Polmeyer's favorite too. So we're <laughs> you know, and he's my bishop, and and uh, you know, it's it's a joy to have you back on. And as we look at the nativity of Jesus, you know, like meditating on this joyful mystery, you know, truly, I think it's. I think it's good to come to the forms of, of, you know, the historical context of the gospels in which they were written and really look deeply at what we can say with great accuracy at the birth of Christ. And, and Jimmy, you're going to be a huge help for that today. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Y'all are much too kind. And where would you like to begin? Well, I think the, the easiest and most fundamental jumping off point is when was Jesus actually born? Because that's one thing that the Gospels only alludes to. They say whether, you know, it was around this year in the reign of Herod or during the census. Um, when does this nativity even happen? Is this in the year zero? Is this in the year six BC? Is this yeah. in the year two or three BC, four AD? Yeah. What what, it, what do we know about that? Yeah, and did it did it happen at Christmas in December or did it happen in the spring? Like right. when when uh, when was Jesus born? That's and it. just to add to that, there's been a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of uh, talk about a recent phenomenon of somebody going through the astrology of or the astronomical phenomenons of mm -hmm. this 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 star. So yeah, we've stacked up quite a list for you, Jimmy. <laughs> now we're just going to sit ready and go. <laughs> we, we stacked up the deck. Now we're going to sit back and learn. Just, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead and deal. Well, why don't we start on the bigger scale and move to the smaller scale? The bigger scale would be what year was Jesus born? And one thing we can say with absolute confidence is it was not the year zero because <laughs> there is no year zero. We go from 1 BC, one year before Christ, to AD 1, the year of our Lord, 1. 
the first year of our Lord. So there's no zero year, at least in the Gregorian calendar. There is a zero year in the astronomical calendar because it causes a problem for astronomers, you know, when they're running simulations of where stars and planets were in different years, if there's no year zero. So they've, they treat 1 BC as the year zero, but we don't do that in ordinary society. So there's no year zero. He wasn't born in year zero. We have good evidence that he was born in the first decade BC, um, that uh, he was born during the reign of King Herod. And one of the things that it, that's agreed upon by Matthew and Luke, and one of the things that everybody pretty much agrees on is that Herod died in the first decade BC. The question is, when did he die? Now, there is a common theory that you will hear um, that says, and it's become common in the last about 100 years ago, uh, that Herod died in the year 4 BC. There's another view, historically, that he died in the year 1 BC. But in recent times, the 4 BC theory has become common. And since we have evidence from Matthew that the Magi arrived when Jesus was up to two years old, people will want to say, okay, Herod dies in 4 BC. We need to backtrack by a couple of years from that. So Jesus was born maybe in 6 or 7 BC. The problem is there are problems with that. Uh, one of them is that uh, it messes up the chronology later because we have uh, Luke says that Jesus was about 30 years old when his ministry began, and we know that happened during the reign of Pontius Pilate, during his tenure as the Roman governor. And we have good evidence, since Jesus is crucified on a Friday, according to all four of the Gospels, they all say it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Sabbath, which is Friday, um, and that it was a Friday at Passover, we know that he had to have been crucified in um, in either A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. Those are the only two years that have Friday Passovers that are plausible candidates. And so that would mean if he was born in, in 6 or 7 B.C., that he was between 36 and 39 years old at the time of his crucifixion. And that doesn't fit the data we have from the Gospels. Uh, based on the chronology of the Gospel of John, it looks like he had a ministry of about three and a half years, because we can count the number of Passovers and Jewish holidays that occur in the Gospel of John until approximately how many years his ministry took. So it looks from the from the from the Gospels, that he would have been maybe 33, 34 years old, not 36 to 39 years old. So that's one problem with the 6 BC date. Another problem is the evidence that Herod died in 4 BC is bad. Mm -hmm. It's based on some calculations from the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, who relates Herod's death to a particular eclipse that occurred. And the, the problem is there are two eclipses that could fit, one of them in 4 BC, one of them in 1 BC. The 4 BC eclipse was only a partial eclipse, and Josephus relates a number of different things that Herod did after the eclipse, but before he died, and there wouldn't be enough time in 4 BC for those to happen. So the older view that Herod died in 1 BC appears to be correct. And if we then back up a year to two years from that, 
we get 2 or 3 BC. And guess what? That's exactly when the church fathers say Jesus was born. We have a broad consensus among the early church fathers saying that Jesus was born in the 28th year of Augustus Caesar, and that corresponds to the back half of 3 BC and the front half of 2 BC. We can also deduce the same thing from internal information in the Gospels, because um, Luke reports that Jesus' ministry began just after the ministry of John the Baptist began. And in Luke 3, Luke gives us a, a very precise reading on when John the Baptist's ministry began. He says it was in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Well, Tiberius came to the throne in 14 BC. That's when Augustus died. And so you add 15 years to that, you get AD 29. If Jesus is about 30 in that year, you back up 30 years, remembering that there's no year zero, and you would deduce that Jesus was born about the year 2 BC. So it looks like, based on several different lines of evidence, that Jesus was born in either the back half of 3 BC or the front half of 2 BC. So that's a general sketch of what I would say about the year he was born. Now, you mentioned a few things in there, and one I'll go back to is the Magi. That they did not, so look, whenever we, most people think of Christmas and like, oh, there's the star of the Bethlehem and then all the shepherds are singing and, and you know, as the baby Jesus is still crying his first cries, the Magi walk in and they, they're giving gifts. That's not the case. The Magi would have showed up up to two years later. Otherwise, Herod wouldn't have said, kill every baby two years or younger, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So that that's a hint right there. So talking about the Magi, I think, helps to, number one, inform the date, but mm -hmm. uh, what would you say about when they showed up and what were they following? And does anything that they could have been following astrologically you know, or astronomically help to enforce that date as well? So determining what the Star of Bethlehem, in order to determine what the Star of Bethlehem was, you kind of have to know when Jesus was born first. You need to know at least the year, and then you can look in that, or year or two, and then you can look in that time frame and say what plausibly could have triggered the Magi's journey. Now, one thing to realize is they were not following an object in the sky. You often hear that they were following the star, and that would, but stars don't move around in the sky in a way that you can follow them. So if that's what they were doing, then the star would have to be a supernatural object. It was something that did not normally exist. The problem is stars that don't normally exist don't have any meaning in astrological systems because they're unpredictable. In the ancient world, they would sometimes see novas or new stars. Nova is just the Latin word for new. And new stars didn't have any meaning because they weren't part of their system. You know, they'd never seen them before. A joker so, or a wild card. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then there's the fact that if you actually read what Matthew says about the star, he never says they're following it. What he says is they saw the star in the east, and then they realized its significance that it portended the birth of a new Jewish king. So they go to the logical place to find a new Jewish king that's been born. They go to the court of Herod the Great in Jerusalem, and they say, where is he? Because they don't know. They, they, they know there's a new Jewish king born, but they don't know where he is. They're not following the star. And then as they're told, well, go to Bethlehem, 
Bethlehem is south of Judea, south of Jerusalem. And so as they start going south at night to Bethlehem, they coincidentally see the star in front of them. And when they get to Bethlehem, they see the star over the house where Jesus is, and they rejoice. This is a providential coincidence. They saw the star when it rose, but they didn't know where to go for sure. And now they're getting confirmation that we're in the right place because they're seeing the star again. So they're not actually following the star. If we look at different time periods in this first decade BC, you can make different proposals about what the star was. Some of the proposals are terrible. Some people will say, it's a meteor. Well, okay, problem. Meteors last for like a second in the sky. They also don't have astrological meanings like this that are going to tell you about the birth of a king. And you don't see the same meteor twice. So meteor is a terrible suggestion. Um, comets have been proposed, and there were some comets in this decade. The problem is um, comets were almost universally regarded as a, as, a, um, as a bad omen. There's something you didn't want to see. And so that wouldn't tell you in the astrologies of this period that a new king had been born. So what would it be? Well, it, it's, people have also proposed um, it could be a, a background star, you know, one of the stars that rotates around the celestial pole. The problem is those stars rotate every year. So you're going to get the stars in the, the background stars in the same position every year. But you're not having a new Jewish king born every year. So this is not a good sign for the birth of a new king if it's a background star. So that leaves us with the planets. And the planets, which are known, which were considered stars, um, the, in Greek, they were called asteres planetes, which means wandering stars. Because unlike the fixed stars, they don't just orbit the celestial pole. They wander around in the sky. They move back and forth depending on where they are in their orbits and where we are in our orbit. And so they wander back and forth against the background stars. And that's why astrological systems focus on the planets. Where are the planets? What are they doing? And um, so in all, in all likelihood, the star that triggered their journey was at least one of the planets, maybe more than one, because mm -hmm. planets can you know, go into conjunction and look like one star. Well, we then need to say, okay, what system of astrology would they have been using? There have been attempts to use the Greek astrological system um, to figure this out. But the problem is the wise men did not come from Greece. Greece is to the west of Israel. And we're told the wise men came from the east. So if you want to figure out what the star was, you probably want to look at a system of astrology that was used eastward of Israel, like in Babylon. And it so happens because the Babylonians wrote on clay tablets and clay tablets survived the ages really well, we've got bunches of Babylonian tablets, including their astrology manual. And Babylonian astrology is very interesting. It doesn't work like the astrology we're familiar with. 
um, where you like calculate what position the planets are going to be in or were in at the time of someone's birth, and you make deductions about what's going to happen to them. Uh, so we have a kind of predictive astrology where you can predict where the planets are going to be and make deductions from that. The Babylonians didn't do that. They had a reactive system of astrology where they would they didn't try to predict where the planets were going to be. Instead, they observed where they were. And when a planet did a certain thing, they said, okay, now this is going to happen. But they didn't try to run this out into the future. It was an observational form of astronomy, of astrology. Um, one of the things that's characteristic of Babylonian astrology is the planet Jupiter represents the king. Um, you know, even in, in Greco-Roman astrology, you know, Jupiter was the king of the gods, Zeus. And that's also true in Babylonian astrology. Uh, the planet Jupiter was identified with the god Marduk, who was the king of the Babylonian pantheon of gods. So Jupiter of the wandering planets is the king star. And there are some fascinating things that they did with Jupiter and that had significance for the king. One of the things that Jupiter could do when they would see it um, – I want to say it, it, it's connected with how Jupiter interacts with the moon and an eclipse and whether the moon appears or not. But they had a certain sign involving Jupiter that meant the king is about to die. And so the Babylonians, uh, kings, didn't, you know, didn't really want to die. And so they came up with what's known as the substitute king ritual. Mm. And so what they would do is they would take a condemned criminal, someone who is already scheduled to die and make him king for a month. I've read about that before. That's cool. Mm. And, and that king had a good month. It was a good mm. way to go out. But then... <laughs> yeah, as, as they say in the Mikado, he lived like a fighting cop. They they got you know a, ro a rooster. Um, they 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 got him dressed up as the king. They fed him like the king. They talked to him like the king. He got to sing on sit on the king's throne and live in the king's house and do all this stuff. Meanwhile, the actual king has become a farmer, and so they dress him like a farmer. He eats like a farmer. Everyone talks about him as the farmer in order to make it really clear to the gods this is a farmer and this is the king that's going to die. And then at the end of the month, they would kill the substitute king, and then the farmer gets promoted. <laughs> and so, um, so this was one of the Babylonian king rituals connected with their astrology. Well, there's been some recent work done looking at things that would have happened in the sky in the years 3 and 2 BC that would have had significance for the Babylonians. Now, one of the things that they, and it, it appears they actually saw a couple of different signs. One of the signs said the king of Akkad, that's where Babylon is, the king of Akkad is going to die and the dynasty is going to change. This is going to be an end of a dynasty. They also saw a, a sign that suggests um, you could send a messenger to make peace in this situation. And they saw a sign, all these involved Jupiter, that said um, that, um, uh, that there's going to be a new conquering king coming from Amuru. Amuru is the territory between where Babylon is and the Mediterranean Sea. So that's the territory that covers Israel. 
And so it looks like what they may have seen are signs with Jupiter that they interpreted to mean the current king of Babylon is going to die, which was fine with them because they were ruled by the Persians at the time. And they didn't like the current king. They had been rebelling against him. So the current king that's ruling over them is going to die. The dynasty is going to change. There's going to be a new conquering king from it, coming from Amuru in the West. And you maybe want to send a messenger to make peace. So it'll go well when the new king comes into power. And so they then did what you would expect. They was like, what kings are there in Amuru right now? Oh, Herod the Great's the biggest. Let's go there. Mm-hmm and try to make peace and bring gifts to the newborn king so that he'll remember when he grows up, he'll remember that we were the first, we were really kind, we extended diplomatic relations, and now please treat us nice as our new coming king. And so it looks like that may have been what um, what they what they interpreted the sky to be meaning. Now, in terms of when they would have seen this, there were actually two different signs. One of them occurred in the fall of 3 BC. Now, you often hear of Jesus being born um, on December 25th. That's when the church in the West commemorates Jesus' birth. The church fathers, and there are church fathers who support that date, but they are not universal. There are other dates that the church fathers also propose, like January 6th which is often treated as Christmas in the East, in Eastern Christendom. But both of these dates are around the turn of our year, of our calendar year. They're like around New Year. Well, it so happens that the one of the signs involving Jupiter was when it went past, it, it did kind of a loop around the star Regulus, um, which in some traditions is also associated as a king star. That's what Regulus means, like the little king. Um, and that's in Western astrology. It may not have had the same significance to the Babylonians. But in September of 3 BC, the Jupiter did this loop around Regulus, and it happened on September 11th, like September 11th, September 13th in that area. And that was also the turn of the Jewish New Year. So there may have been a tradition saying Jesus was born around New Year, mm-hmm. and it was originally meant as the Jewish New Year, but it got transferred to the Roman New Year because that was the New Year that more people in the West were familiar with. Um, also, at this time, there was an interesting, this is late September, there's an interesting other phenomenon that was occurring astrologically. You had the constellation. Now, in Revelation, and there have been various people who've talked about this. In Revelation 12, John sees this great sign of a woman in heaven. And Mm -hmm. she's got a crown of 12 stars, and she's got the sun, and she's clothed with the sun and has the moon at her feet. Okay, let's, is, is is there a big woman in heaven that people would be familiar with? Well, yeah, the constellation Virgo, the virgin. Mm hmm. And so is, and does she have a crown of 12 stars? Well, in some asterisms, that's, those are mappings of the constellations. Yes, she does. Um, is she ever clothed with the, sun, with the sun? Yeah, that happens every year. That's when people who are born in the sign of Virgo, that's where the sun is. It's in Virgo. That's your, the, their sun sign. Mm-hmm. And so, so every year you've got Virgo clothed with the sun. 
when the sun is kind of in the middle of Virgo. And some of those years, the moon is also coincidentally going to be at her feet. Mm-hmm. Well, that happened around September 11th in 3 BC. Mm-hmm. And there have been proposals that that's what John is referring to in Revelation 12. He's recording astronomical information about when the birth of Jesus occurred because he sees this woman in heaven clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet, give birth to Jesus. So this is an event, this is a symbol tied to the birth of Jesus, and it's been proposed he's, this, is, this is based on what was happening in the sky at the time. So we have several lines of evidence that could propose that, um, that Jesus may, may, this is not at all certain, but may have been born um, in September of, in mid-September of 3 BC. Nine months after that, there's a second sign where Jupiter reaches its halting point in the sky. And because as planets move in their orbits, you know, we, it's like cars on a freeway, a planet's moving along in its orbit and another car comes and catches up to it. And when the car catches up to the first one, it looks like that first car is now standing still. You know, as you're about to pass a car, it looks like you're moving, the other car is standing still. And that happens with planets. And when it would happen with Jupiter, it would be called Jupiter's halting point because the Earth is now passing Jupiter in its orbit. Well, nine months after September, so this we're now in like June, July of 2 BC, there is Jupiter reaching its halting point. And in Babylonian astrology, when Jupiter reaches its halting point, enemy kings will be reconciled. So that's a very promising sign. And so one proposal is that the, um, the, the Magi saw the star, Jupiter, do its thing in September of 3 BC. They mounted an expedition to go greet the new Jewish king and, and lay the groundwork for future good relations. And they got there nine months later. And when they got there, Jupiter hit its halting point as they were watching it in the night sky on their journey to Bethlehem. And that signaled that was, and they rejoiced because this is a sign enemy kings are going to be reconciled. Things are going to go good. This is a successful mission. Mm -hmm. And so that's the proposal. And then, you know, because the ancients treated parts of years as if they were whole years, you know, if a king had been reigning for two months, you said, this is his first year. Um, well, if Jesus was born nine months earlier, this is all one year. So you could say Jesus was born last year. And then by the time Herod the Great realizes they're not coming back, it's like, okay, just for safety margin, kill all of the kids two years old and younger. Mm -hmm. And the chronology fits very nicely. Now, some of this is speculative and parts of it may or may not be accurate. You know, the Babylonians may not have seen it exactly the way I just proposed, but this is a plausible case. That is so fascinating. It's such it a such a fascinating breakdown onto kind of the um, the historical critical method of thinking like the Babylonians, mm-hmm. not thinking like a Western, um, and looking at how they would have interpreted it and using the Magi as a dating tool. That's that's yeah. a really really super cool approach. And to uh, be able to look up to the to the skies to the heavens 
And what a mystery to behold in the first place. But, you know, I think in, in recent years, it's just like the, the fascination of the heavens and what that represented for the ancient people and what that represents in, in just really dating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it, it was maybe touched on a little bit in undergrad, maybe touched on in, you know, little ways in the seminary. But just really the what you just shared uh, very succinctly is, is just so helpful to so many people just to really delve into like, all right, let's be specific about yeah. this and let's really look, uh, you know, in, into the stars and, 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 and yeah. figure out what it's saying. And reverse it's, engineer these things. Yeah. Well, yeah the method of, yeah. of uncovering, uh, is obviously substantial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, Really beautiful how God uses everything, the cosmos. I mean, he uses topography <laughs> when Jesus was baptized, you know, mm-hmm. the lowest place on earth. Like there's just a lot going on there that I think from a, a Christian standpoint, a perspective, we don't realize the totality of how God uses everything, mm-hmm. you know? And I wonder if there's any other um, things we could make, uh, you know, um, uh, studies on about, you know, Christ coming again, like if there's anything yeah. indicating mm-hmm. anything else in the well, in the cosmos as well. Well, we've done the episode with Jimmy on the Book of Revelations. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that up there. Yeah, we get into a lot of those other kinds yeah. of signs. Um, I would say one thing that I, in the defense of December 25th as a alternate date, there is some other things, and from my understanding, there's some traditions around why that date was settled on. And now there's some that are historical, like Jimmy would have mentioned, but others, um. Tradition would have said that Jesus would have been, the crucifixion would have happened on March 25th. And in the ancient world, and Jimmy, correct me if I'm getting in this wrong, in the ancient world, people, great people were considered to die on the day they were conceived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if he was crucified on the 25th, that means that's why we celebrate the Annunciation on the 25th. Mm-hmm. Nine months from the 25th of March is December 25th. So you have nine months from the date of the Annunciation, the date of the crucifixion. Uh, Jimmy, what would you say about that? Well, I have no problem with the idea of Jesus being born December 25th. In fact, I regularly knock down arguments that, you know, some people say, well, he couldn't have been born December 25th. Uh, And then they propose arguments like because it was too cold for the sheep, you know, because Luke says the shepherds were out with the sheep and then they came and saw Jesus. Well, okay, number one, it doesn't get that cold in Israel. I mean, they do sometimes get snow, but, um, you know, they didn't have big heated barns to put their sheep in. And um, also, you know that stuff sheep are covered with? (laughs) You know what we make out of that? We make coats out of that. And if you Google winter sheep care, it will actually tell shepherds, do not put your sheep inside all the time in the winter. They are covered with wool so that they can be outside in the winter. that's that's how they evolved. You know, we didn't always care for sheep. They were originally wild animals and they did just fine mm-hmm. in the cold. So they're designed for that. And um and so and even today shepherds take their sheep out on December 25th mm-hmm. in Israel. There was uh I there was a, a fam- there's a famous letter in biblical chronology circles. The chronology is the study of when things happened. And I'm a huge biblical chronology nerd. Couldn't have told. Well, 
there's a famous um, there's a famous letter from the 1960s where a scholar named uh, Mulder, who was in Israel at the time, went to Shepherd's Field in Bethlehem on December 25th, and he wrote one of his friends and said. The shepherds are out here with their sheep. Even the even the lambs are not lacking. They're they're all out here. They're doing just fine. So the idea that it couldn't happen December twenty fifth, I think, is is nonsense. And you know, you'll also have other theories about they timed it this way to coincide with this pagan sun festival of Saul Invictus, the unconquerable sun. Well, except we don't have any evidence that the Romans celebrated Saul Invictus before the Christians were celebrating Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the church fathers who support December 25th do not say, let's hijack this pagan holiday. They say, let's celebrate the birth of our Lord. So they're the ones who are advocating December 25th, they sincerely think that's when Jesus was born. In terms, uh, and 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 it doesn't seem to have been a conscious. Let's set. It, surely, at some points, if assuming December twenty fifth is not the historic date, someone at some point must have reasoned their way to December twenty fifth. Mm-hmm. And you sketched one way they might do that. You know, there was a belief that the crucifixion had occurred on March twenty fifth. In some circles, there was that belief. We know that that theory is false, though. I mean, people believed it, but if you look at the calendars for the right frame of years, none of them have have Passover on March 25th. Yeah, I wouldn't have landed on that Friday. Yeah, yeah. We we so we know that that's not. I think it's April April third, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in thirty, if if Jesus was crucified in AD thirty three, which I think is the correct year, it would have been April third. Yes, it also would have been April if if it was thirty, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, people did support the idea. It was March 25th. There's a, there's a question though, about which way does the arrow of causality point? Mm -hmm. Now I should mention that this idea that people lived perfect lives, you die on the same day you're born. That's hard to document Mm -hmm. in this time period. There, there are some, there are, there's some indication that people may have had that idea in some Jewish and Christian circles, but it's not easy to document. However, supposing someone did have that view, so you could then say, okay, uh, if Jesus is, is, um, dies on, on March 25th, then he must have been conceived on March 25th. Mm-hmm. which is itself a little shaky because they really focused on births, not conceptions. And then you could add nine months to March 25th to get December 25th. Mm-hmm. You also could run, try running the logic the other way. Well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe the December date was what led to a backtracking to March for the conception date. Yeah. So it's, it's a little hard to say. I would say the better evidence to my mind supports a September birthday but I don't think we can really be conclusive in this area. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of covering the birth. That's the when. And now I think the next question is the where. So a lot of people will say the gospel writers concocted the story of the Holy Family having to go to Bethlehem during the census of Quirinius to fulfill uh, biblical prophecies that – this, this was a guy from Galilee. He was born in Nazareth. And the, the gospel writers would have said, well, we know the prophecy says that the son of David 
the future Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So they add that on to the story. What do we know about the where? What do we know about the the gospel accuracy on the story of coming down to uh, Bethlehem and and the birth being happening there? Well, there's sort of two issues here. One of them is what to make of the census of Quirinius, and we can talk about that in a minute. Um, the but that's not going to ultimately be a problem, and so I'll set that aside for the moment. Um, the data we have comes from on where Jesus was born comes from Matthew and Luke. Those are our only two first century sources that discuss exactly where he was born, and they both agree that he was born in Bethlehem. So that's the data we have. Also, in the case of Luke's gospel, the data is particularly significant because if you look at Luke's infancy narrative, there are two points um, where Luke tells us Mary treasured these, remembered these things in her heart and treasured them. What Luke is doing there is he's signaling who his source was. The only reason to mention that Mary remembered this is to tell us, this is how I know this, Mm -hmm. because Mary remembered it. She's the source. He doesn't say Joseph remembered it or their neighbor remembered it. He says Mary remembered it. And the only reason he needs to tell us that Mary remembered it, because normally people remember stuff that happens in their lives. The only reason to stress that she remembered these things is to signal she's the source. That's excellent. That's so cool. Yeah, I've never heard that before. He's naming his trident, his tradition bearer for this information. And so that means he either interviewed Mary himself or he talked to someone who did talk to Mary. But either way, Mary is the trident. She's the source for this information. And that means we have information from an eyewitness that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. In fact, we have information from the woman who bore him in Bethlehem that it happened in Bethlehem. So um, unless there's a compelling counter-argument, we've got actually quite strong evidence from Jesus' own mom that this is where it happened. Mm -hmm. That's great. So then, and there's a couple follow-up questions I'd want to ask about how long they stayed in Bethlehem after the birth, because a lot of times you think, oh, well, he was born. Let's pack up the bags and go back to Nazareth, right? Well, you wouldn't really travel with a newborn baby. Uh, It'd have been a lot easier to have extended family help take care of a baby. Mm -hmm. And it also says that they presented him at the temple, right, at the purification of Mary on February 2nd. You think they're going to travel all the way up to Nazareth and then like, oh, that was nice, and pack the bags right up and turn right back around, right? They're not going to do that, right? Um, and then I think we can also infer from the the massacre of the innocents that they were still there when the angel told Joseph to pack up and move to Egypt. So how long would they have stayed in Bethlehem after the nativity? We can't know for sure, but um, you have just made some points that I've also made. Uh, there's an article— I've learned them from you, Jimmy. Okay. <laughs> there's an article I wrote that people can Google uh, called How the Accounts of Jesus' Childhood Fit Together. And if you Google Jimmy Aiken, How the Accounts of Jesus' Childhood Fit Together, this article will come up. I'll put a link in the, in the comments, too, onto that. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, What I do in the article, because sometimes people will say Matthew and Luke contradict each other. Well, no, they don't. Um, I show how you can weave what Matthew and Luke say together into a consistent narrative. 
And one of the questions I address is, so when did they, when did they go? We have evidence that they came down to Bethlehem because of this uh, enrollment. It, it's not actually the word census, this enrollment that was going on. And then there's a question of how long did they stay? It's, we know they stayed at least till the 40th day because that's when Jesus was presented in the temple. Mm-hmm. And by the 40th day, Mary could have recovered sufficiently from pregnancy, from childbirth, to be ready to travel. So they could have gone back at that point. And they could have then come back because they were observant Jews who observed the three, every year there were three feasts where you had to go to Jerusalem. Passover was one of them. And we have evidence that they observed those feasts because in Luke 2, that's what they're doing when Jesus is 12 years old. They've come to Jerusalem for Passover. So if they're observing these three feasts, they would come back to Jerusalem every three times a year. Bethlehem is just six miles away. They probably, it was Joseph's city, we're told. So they had family there. They could stay with their family every time they came back. Um, And then, hypothetically, the Magi could have shown up a year to two years later when they were on one of these trips. But that's unlikely. It's unlikely the Magi are going to show up just when they're coincidentally back in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Also, Notice what happens when after they've gone to Egypt. Um, Joseph gets a dream, says Herod the Great is dead, so you can go back to Israel. So he goes back to Israel, and then when he learns that Herod's terrible son Archelaus is the new ruler of Judea, he says, let's divert to Galilee. So it looks like for Matthew, he was planning on living in Judea where Bethlehem is, until he learned about Archelaus, who was indeed a terrible ruler. The Jews complained and the Romans ended up removing him, um, which is how we got the system of Roman governors, because they yanked Archelaus as tetrarch and put in put Roman governors in its place. That's why we have Pontius Pilate when Jesus is an adult, mm-hmm. rather than a son of Herod ruling. And um, so it looks like Joseph was going to live in uh, Judea, and diverted because of Archelaus. Well, between that and the fact it's unlikely the Magi would show up during one of their three annual visits, I think it's more likely that Joseph and Mary had resettled in Bethlehem. They came down for the census or the enrollment. Uh, Mary gave birth. They needed to stay there for a while and business opportunities came up for Joseph. You know, he's not going to sit on his hands for a month or two months or anything like that. He's going to go to work as a builder. He's got other relatives here. They're in the building trade. He'll help them. You know, he's not going to just laze around the house with everyone else working. They didn't have paternity leave back then, I don't think. Yeah, no, they didn't. So he's going to go to work. And I would propose that based on the data we have, the most logical supposition is he, he, he and Mary resettled here in Bethlehem for however long it was, nine months or a year or up to two years, um, before the Magi showed up. Mm-hmm. And then it was the coming of the Magi that caused him to relocate to Egypt and the coming of Archelaus that caused them to relocate to Galilee. Mm. That all lines up, and that, that lines up then with that 1 BC death date of Herod. So if he was born yeah. in 2 or 3, right. and he gets the message that Herod mm-hmm. is dead, that's about two a year and a half, two years later, somewhere in there. Mm. Uh, that all kind of lines up and synthesizes mm. very well. So... We're, we're pretty confident that he was born then in Bethlehem. What about the actual church of the nativity? What can you tell about the tradition around that? 
you know, why that was built on that spot and how likely that is the actual <clears throat> spot, that silver star where the nativity happened. So we have data from the second century rather than the first that indicates Jesus was born in a cave. Um, this is mentioned, for example, in the in the infancy gospel of James. It's also known as the Proto-Evangelium of James. Um, in the infancy gospel, Joseph and Mary have come to Bethlehem, and Mary is ready to give birth, and she's in a cave. And Joseph, there's this fascinating scene. Um, Joseph goes to fetch a midwife to help with the birth, and as he's as he's bringing the midwife, time stops. And Joseph sees birds frozen in the air and animals drinking from a spring and their tongues are frozen. And he sees men who are having their lunch and their hand is frozen halfway to their mouth. And he experiences this time stop and then everything resumes normal motion. And it's, and it's come to understand that he comes to understand that was the moment Jesus was born. It was such an important moment. It's like everything in the world froze, at least in his experience. Now, I think because this is a second century document, it's not inspired. It's not part of the Bible. I think this is a poetic thing. I think it's fascinating, but I think it's poetic. But nevertheless, this document is early enough that it can contain genuine traditions about mm -hmm. Jesus' birth. Not all of them are going to be accurate, but some of them very well can be. And the Proto-Evangelium records Jesus being born in a cave in Bethlehem. Well, there are caves in Bethlehem, and people would build houses into caves. That also happened in Nazareth. Um, so, so it's plausible to the setting that we're in. You know, if you said someone was born in a cave in New York City, well, they, I don't know that they have caves in New York City or that people build houses into them. But they did in Bethlehem. So this is an this this has the ring of historical authenticity. Then a, a couple of centuries later, as um, as Christians are becoming popular in this land, and you know the the Emperor Constantine converts, his mom Helena is a Christian. Constantine's having work being done to build churches at the holy sites. Um, Helena goes over, has a tour. Um, we have the Church of the Nativity established in the early 300s. So this is like, you know, just 300 years afterwards with an intervening citation of Jesus being born in a cave in Bethlehem. I think this is plausible. Now, in terms of is the so if you go to the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and you go underground into the grotto, into the cave, um, and by the way, that's a really awesome experience to do that, especially to sing or pray in that little cave. Um, they do have a silver star on the ground marking or commemorating the spot that Jesus was born. Is that star the exact spot? We can't say that with confidence. You know, we don't have a, a we don't have a chain of tradition going all the way back that that identifies that as the exact spot in the cave. But we do have enough of a tradition which would have been filled in by local Bethlehem Christians during this this dark period. I think it's quite plausible the local Christians in Bethlehem knew where Joseph's family's house was and they knew that that was the site and so I think we have a plausible identification of the cave 
as where Jesus was born. But as to the exact spot in the cave, I don't think we can say that with confidence. And you feel it. I mean, when you walk around the church of the nativity, the impact spiritually, the impact in the environment of where you are and, and the surrounding uh, places of worship and remembrance, yeah. you know, the Milk Grotto, another another example of this, like getting a real sense that the, these were caves, you mm -hmm. know, and, and at times, you know, you could look at the Church of the Nativity and you could be kind of overwhelmed with its beauty and its simplicity. But at the same time, it's like, that what that church wasn't there, you know. Like you're walking around, and and the real reality is that th that these are caves that you're that you're walking into, and just the location alone, and the fact that you know for two thousand years people have been journeying here to reverence the birth of this this King of Kings, this this great you know ruler, the Savior. Um, that was born in this place. Like you, when you're walking onto the holy grounds of of what's there, you you absolutely feel it. And this is just so helpful too. This this show and just the insights that you're providing, Jimmy. The that that's really helping us look at it from a scientific lens, um, so that spiritually we could really rest in all of the dialogue and all of the conspiracy theories and all of the mm -hmm. attacks. That like, let's look at this. What we could say with accuracy historically. And then let's place ourselves there so that spiritually we could benefit from it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so before we go into the last point I wanted to make, I wanted to real quick mention our sponsors. So do you want to talk about that, Father Rich? Absolutely, Shil. Our sponsors today are absolutely fantastic. For this episode, first and foremost, we want to give a shout out to Our Holy Home. And what I love about what Our Holy Home does for people and Catholics all around the world is provide beautiful aspects of our faith and art and in all the different forms of the domestic life. So we're called to be the domestic church in our homes, in our families, and really make sacred the space that we call home. And in order to do that, we, we should really think about our holy home because they have some incredible products on here. Like I've looked at this, uh, I want to order this for myself, but a dish towel that has a quote from Mother Teresa, wash the plate, not because it is dirty, nor because you are told to wash it, because you love the person who will use it next, which That's is cool. just, which is really cool. Like it's, it's things like this to kind of remind us that we all have a role in family life to proclaim the good news in the words of St. John Paul II. And we need helpful reminders, just like statuary and, and different images uh, on, on these uh, beautiful blocks. Like they're, they're just awesome. You've seen yep. this stuff, this stuff too before. Yeah, so I like that because uh, my kids complain about doing dishes. So I'll be like, no, man, read this <laughs> Mother Teresa, buddy. <laughs> so Our Holy Home is brought to you by Catholic Concepts, which is the same people that bring you sock religious. Um, and what they've done is they've brought the same kind of joy and creativity that they did in sock religious to household items. So they have things for your bathroom, for your bedroom, for your living room, for the kitchen that inspires you and creates a home environment full of the Catholic faith. So everything from blankets and throw pillows to tablecloths to wall art uh, to coffee mugs, all kinds of beautiful things that really um, in, invite somebody when they're in your home to know that this is a Catholic place, uh, that they're both beautiful, durable, and affordable. So, I mean, you can go to Walmart and you can buy whatever junk they've got on the shelf. You can go to, you know, a discount store and get whatever Chinese made, um, you know, non-religious kind of just artifacts to throw around your house, or you can have something that's really meaningful made by a great Catholic company right here in America 
in Indiana by the same people who've done sock religion. So if you go to ourholyhome.com, use the code TALK10, you can save 10% off of everything on the entire website. So that's ourholyhome.com forward slash TALK10. And you can check out all of their different collections. They have collections for each room by different types of themes. Uh, Father Rich, these are I love I this think, thing right great here. gifts, man. Oh, yeah. This- this is my favorite. It's like the state of Florida and the outlining of it is the rosary and the keys are, you know, from the cross, from the cross all the way up to Miami where the uh, miraculous medal is. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of cool. I love, I love this. So I'm going to give this to you Delacross when you, uh, when you come back home, back to yeah. Florida. Thank you, man. No. And I was just thinking like, we, we have an altar. We, we consecrated our home to the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, you know, I've got uh, articles from Fatima on bookshelves, some of the trips that we've taken, the pilgrimages. But like this is like extending it beyond even any of the areas that I, I could ever think of, like these pillows, these blankets, like, you know, little things for the wall uh, just to, to spread throughout the house. So I'm really appreciative of mm-hmm. this. Yeah, they got great things like coasters, wall art. Um these Wall things planners pencil. like yeah. calendars they've got all sorts of stuff on here it's great yeah really really great Pretty brand cool. a brand that we like um by people that we really know and trust that we've worked with a long time so again ourholyhome.com forward and use code cat and use code talk 10 to save 10 percent <laughs> off everything there talk 10 for 10 talk 10 our next sponsor has been with us from the very beginning, Exodus, and we're gearing up for a New Year's resolution like no other because we're going back to the core values of Exodus 90. And if there's any way that I could share with you, pastorally speaking, that you could prepare for renewal and transformation in your life, it's by doing Exodus 90. In the past eight years, more than 100,000 men in over 80 countries have taken up the spiritual exercises that has shown dramatic transformations for men in their prayer lives, their marriages, their professional life, in every respect, due to the tenets of what is represented in Exodus 90. And it's going to be starting January 1st this year, 90 days till Easter Sunday. And on January 1st, there will be no shortage of advertisements promising you a better life as you start the new year. We're all super familiar with that. But, you know, there's so much marketing going yeah, in. Everyone's, oh, hey, go to the gym, new year, new you, change your life, do this. I mean, that's because the new year is a time to really reflect on what your aspirations are. And with Exodus starting on January 1st this year, I think it's a really unique opportunity to realign yourself to be the man that God wants you to be through the different pillars of the Exodus 90 program, which is prayer, fasting, fraternity, right? Uh, And asceticism. Uh, Exodus 90, like you've said, Father, it's, I mean, over 80,000 men have done this and they've done studies on this, you know, the impact that it's made on their life. And these men are saying their life is better. Their, their finances are better. Their prayer life is better. Their marriage is better. Their professional life is better. I mean, this is making a real impact. So instead of what, not only just like on the personal life, but like communally, like this, it's, it's incredible how it affects so many other people. That's right. So yeah, and I'll say a lot of our listeners have, have reached out to us and thanked us for uh, introducing them to Exodus, uh, in this case, Exodus 90. So we're really grateful that it's had an impact on, you know, the folks that watch our show too. That's mm-hmm. right. So if you go to uh, catholictalkshow.com forward slash Exodus, you can try this out. You can download this beautiful app. It's got all sorts of resources. It'll help you lead a fraternity with you and other men, or you could join a fraternity through it. Uh, it'll help you through the different spiritual exercises. 
uh, so that you start on January 1st and 90 days later, it's Easter, and you're going to come out at the other end really as a new and reinvigorated man. So again, you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Exodus to try this out. Well, we can't recommend it enough. I mean, I know we've all done Exodus, the cold showers, the no beer, the no watching frivolous television or consuming media that doesn't help us, right? The modern world is really designed to break a man down and to get rid of his virility and to where he's no more than just a consumer and a producer. Exodus 90 is really different. It's telling you how to be the man that God wants you and the church and your family and your country needs you to be. So true. And, you know, coming from the sense of, you know, the heart of what this program's about is prayer and that fraternity, that asceticism and, and that commitment. And that's well within all of our capacity, but the foundation is prayer. And that's why we're proud to present the next partner in our show from the very beginning, which is Hallow. Hallow, over a billion prayers prayed. And when you reflect on the importance of prayer as the foundational aspect of our life as men and women, as God has created us, it's in that prayerful union with God that we could begin to explore communion with others in the way that God has designed. And there are so many ways to connect through Hallow to develop community life. And some of the options that are good for parishes to do in small groups, Bible studies, you know, all sorts of music accompanied by greats like Mark Wahlberg and Jonathan Rumi and Bishop Barron. Mike Schmitz is on there with his catechism in a year, Bible in a year. There's so much on there and the and the app continues to grow in its breadth and it's, it's really, it's reach. It's tremendous what they do at Hallow. Yeah, I use it every day. We we listen to the the rosary this morning on the way to school. Uh, every night I play sleep meditations for my kids. They know exactly what they want, uh, and they're out in like five minutes. Man, it's great. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, there's something there's something for everyone. There's contemplative prayer. There's music. There's lo-fi. I listened to Advent lo-fi for the first time in my life a couple of weeks ago, but it's, it's great. We've been users of this app for years and years and to see it grow into such a beautiful ministry to the world has been uh, very rewarding. It's such yeah, an extensive library of Catholic content and, yeah. and it's, it's amazing how it continues to expand and grow, but like they also have these really cool challenges you know the the rosary challenge or you know like the the advent challenge pray 25 with c.s lewis and they've got uh liam uh lisa liam neeson you know like the the guy like uh from what's that what was that movie you do a really good impression sure. give me my daughter back <laughs> no it's from the movie ted where he's like are you sure these lucky charms are just for kids <laughs> uh, but they got a lot of really cool stuff like that like you said these challenges they got something cool that i really like going on right now as we're almost to christmas they have um 12 days of christmas music with ben rector so i mean you you can pop this app open and you can listen to chant you can listen to sacred music you can listen to christmas music you can listen to bible in the year with you know father mike schmitz you can listen to reflections i use hollow every day uh when i go for my morning hike I put on the rosary and I do the 20 minute rosary um, and I do that. And then I go in and I go through the daily prayers and the readings. Right. And, you know, it's about an hour of content every day. And it's like now my spiritual and physical habit tied together instead of just listening to some random podcast about, you know, Cleveland sports or whatever, um, enriching myself with technology because Hollow has so much. And like Brian, you said, there is something for everyone on there. So if you go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow, you could try out the entire app, all the premium features, 100% free. 
uh, you can see if this is an app for you. And then after that, you can get the uh, subscription at a lot of different levels. Um, it's free for um, for veterans. So you can check that out um, for a year. There's, so there's, go check out this app, catholictalkshow.com forward slash hollow. We can't recommend it enough. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, Jimmy, one one other question I have since you've kind of rattled a lot of my perception of, of all this, you know, just at least from a historical uh, standpoint. Um, how, how is, if, if they're in a cave, and I've been in these caves, I've, I've been to uh, Bethlehem, I've been to the, the grotto, Our Lady of Leche, uh, so I fully understand that, but so how does how does the 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 N in in scripture uh, uh, kind of match up to that? If we know that Joseph and Mary lived there, how is that called the N? And and what does it look like for the nativity now that you know you've got the Magi there, you've got you know my nativity scene that's up right now? Like what does that kind of indicate for for all of that too as well? Okay, I'm glad you asked because I wanted to touch back on the the idea that there was no room at the inn, so they ended up being in a barn where there were animals. Well, there are a few problems there, and this is actually going to support the theory that I just outlined. It's going to support the Church of the Nativity uh, being the actual location. Um, the first problem is inn, I-N-N, is an English word that means a place where travelers can rent a room for the night. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was not as much a thing um, in the ancient world as it is today. And the word that Luke uses does not mean that. It's a much broader word. The word is in Greek that Luke says was full, where there was no room, is kataluma. And a kataluma does not mean Motel 6. A Cataluma means a dwelling place. Now, that can mean a place like a tavern where travelers might stop and get a room, but it it means much more than that. Any dwelling place is a Cataluma. For example, in later in the Gospels, when Jesus has the Last Supper, you know where he has it? It's in a Cataluma. He tells he tells Peter and James, go into this town, find this guy doing this weird thing with a water jug on his head, follow him home, and say to the owner of the household, where is the Cataluma so I, I and my disciples can eat Passover? So a Cataluma referred not just to dwelling places in general, it would refer specifically to the living room of a house. So this is like an ancient Airbnb, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> no. In terms, uh, in terms of Cataluma, so if you've got a living room, that's effectively your Cataluma, and mm. every house has a Cataluma. So, and in ancient Israel, the Catalumas were on the top level. They were they were not on the bottom level. The bottom level, since they didn't have barns, that's another Western thing. That's where they kept the animals. So the humans live on the upper floor in the Cataluma, and then they have, keep the animals in the lower floor. So if you uh, if you have a house in a cave community, the people are going to be living on a finished floor in an upper level, and then the animals are going to be kept down in the cave. And so Luke says, well, the Cataluma was full, you know, 
presumably because of this enrollment, all the family, you know, need, Joseph needed to go there. Other family members would have needed to go there. The Cataluma is full right now. Do you want to give birth in this crazy, chaotic environment with your whole family right there? Maybe you'd like some privacy. Mm-hmm. So you go down into the cave Very where cool. the only things that are going to see the birth are the animals. And so the language that Luke uses about where Mary gave birth wow. within this house would actually be consistent with the practices in a community where they do build homes into caves or on top of caves. So um, so it's rather different than our nativity scene Christmas card imagery. What's happened over the last 2,000 years is in order to enhance Christians' you know, celebration of Christmas, we want to create art. You know, Sometimes it's pictorial art. Sometimes it's statues, which gives us a nativity scene. We want to create, recreate scenes, tableaus of things. And we, we have some data about Jesus' birth in Matthew and some data in Luke. And so what artists have done is let's just kind of smush it all together. So uh, since they're Western artists, they're thinking in terms of, oh, we keep animals in barns. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they must be in a barn. So let's build a barn-like structure. And we know that the shepherds came, so let's put some shepherds there. And we know that that there was a manger there that Mary put Jesus in. So let's put a manger here. Let's put a couple of cows here because cows are animals that we keep in barns. Oh, and those guys came with the star. So let's put a star up on top and let's bring in the Magi here too and have them with some camels since they came from the east. And they composed this scene by just knitting together different things through a kind of Western cultural lens, which gives us the barn. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's what they did. But it's, it, it, it's not what you would have literally seen because these things, they didn't use barns. And, and, um, and, and yeah, the shepherds would have been there that night, but not the Magi. And so it's, it's fine to do this. It doesn't have to be historically accurate. It still commemorates things that did happen. It's just smushing them all together. It's like we're our, we're projecting our sensibilities, yeah. you know, on God yeah. or the perspectives of the mysteries, and and not doing the legwork and really digging up like what actually did happen. This is so insightful, yeah. and I've never I've never heard this. I'm sure our listeners and our viewers are really blown away by this content, as I am too. I mean, this has just been such a a great conversation, and you know, I just want to express to everybody out there that's that's listening in, listening in. You know, be sure that you're connecting with us right here at the Catholic Talk Show each and every week, where we have the utmost amazing guests, just like Jimmy Aiken on, and just sharing the beauty of our Catholic faith and digging in deep and uncovering the mysteries that we serve day in and day out. And as we look to the nativity scene, I'm never going to look at my own nativity scene, uh, you know, in, in any way Let's like the same. Let's try to build a historic. We need to build a history. And that's actually the question that I have, <laughs> a bunch Jimmy. Of like, upstairs. you know, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen a nativity scene that is accurately depicted? You know, I haven't ever really seen a historically accurate pic- depiction of the nativity in a Christmas card or in a nativity scene. Um, and you know, if I wanted to be, if I wanted to be super particular about it, I could kind of look down on those depictions. But, you know, I, I, 
it's Christmas for one. We can be generous hearted. It doesn't, all, it doesn't all have to be super historically accurate. It's still commemorating the important stuff. Well, the nice thing is, is we have a, a an artist in the family right here at the Catholic Talk Show and Howard. So I'm really going to I'm going to put Howard up to the test because I see he's noodling over this right now, pulling on his long beard, considering what he would design to create a historically accurate, you know, we're nativity gonna, scene. We're going to make literally tens of dollars selling these. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's going against a lot of history and My grandma <laughs> would be so mad with you, Jimmy. She'd be like, don't talk about my nativity scene like that. This is how it happened. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you permission to use your traditional nativity scene. I'm not looking down on that. I'm just saying be aware it's not exactly what we read in the Gospels, and it's it just combines some different things we read in the Gospels. That's so like helpful. It. It's a catch-all. It yeah. is. Well, Jimmy, it's it's always really a, a real uh, pleasure to have you on. I mean, we learn so much. I know our audience is learning a ton. Uh, you're a fan favorite, and it's it's really a special treat for us to be able to have you on and, and get into these kinds of things. And uh, you know, as we are coming up on Christmas, uh, I think this episode was so cool to give people the uh, like a different view of Christmas than they maybe ever considered. So Merry Christmas, Jimmy, and I really appreciate uh, you know coming on. Yeah, and and to each and every one of you out there. A big Merry Christmas to you and your families as you're setting up your nativity scenes. I think you're going to look at them much differently like we are, too. <laughs> and and really diving into the mystery is, is what it's all about. We're entering into the liturgical season where we are meditating extensively on the mystery of the nativity of Jesus Christ. And there's so many materials out there. And we want to encourage you to turn to Jimmy Aiken's uh, content because Jimmy is one of our favorite. We all listen to Jimmy. Obviously, my bishop listens to Jimmy. And it's it's really a, a, a pleasure to be privileged to listen to the fruits of your study, of your labor, and and how you, you share it so eloquently. Yeah, so Jimmy, where can people get more of this outstanding information and, and uh, uh, talks? Well, I uh, I work for Catholic Answers, so catholic.com is our website. I also have a personal website, which is jimmyakin.com, and I'm also on YouTube at youtube.com slash jimmyakin. And in addition to answering questions on Catholic Answers Live and doing interviews like this, I also have a podcast called Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where I look at mysterious subjects of all different kinds, including religious mysteries and biblical mysteries like the ones we were talking about today. Awesome. So I'll make sure there's links to all of that, but go and follow Jimmy. Uh, you'll be smarter for doing it. You know, these are one of those things that, you know, stretch your brain out and, and helps you to really look at things in ways that you probably haven't before, which yeah. is through the, the lens of Jimmy Aiken, which I'm okay with. Perspective. Yep. Yeah. And to all of our followers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, thank you for following the show and sharing this content on the World Wide Web of social media. And to our patrons out there, we wouldn't be able to do it without you. So thank you for your financial support. If you are considering becoming a supporter of the show, go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon, and you'll see all of the tears and the swag that we want to send your way to say thank you. It's a joy to celebrate our faith and to delve more deeply into the mysteries of God's love manifest in the world through Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate Christmas well with the joy of our fellowship. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.